So I don't know if you, any of you remember me from last time. I'm one of the directors of Project Masora. I'm just going to introduce myself real quick and what Project Masora does. Our goal is to make sure that every kid, no matter where they go, no matter what happens, they always feel like they're part of the Masora and they're important in Klai Yisrael. We deal with children who are still somewhat part of our community, but most of the kids we deal with are kids that have actually left. Uh, we deal with young adults. We have a division called the Heritage Club, which is over the age of 21 until about 29. Um, and what we do is we allow them to know, as well as we're able to do this, that uh, Yiddishkeit is still for them. And uh, we let them know that this is something that's coming from the from community. Because a lot of them have had experiences that, that to them, the from community in many different ways without getting into the whole conversation about it, but how the community was really not there for them. Um, in my work in the past uh, couple of years, uh, we've grown from a population from about 20 kids. Uh, our last Hanukkah party had over 400, and our Purim party had, I would say fortunately, but unfortunately over 600. There's about 1,500 in our programs from 21 to 29. And about half That's of boys and girls. Boys and girls, and about fifty percent are are dating uh, outside the faith. In other words, they're either dating or, in some cases, even married. Now, our job is to let them know that uh, no matter what happens, they are an important part of Klal Yisrael. That they are part of the Messiah. Um, and tonight, I think is a unique evening in the sense that from all the work that I've been doing, first of all, I, I know uh, he's gonna be upset that I'm even saying this or doing this, but I, I really wanna say that in my world, uh, you know, Avi Fischoff is an icon and uh, the work that he's doing, it's so apropos that I'm here now because just this week, uh, we actually it was last week, we we had the art set of Sarah Schneer who in many ways uh, changed the face of Klai Yisrael for the better. And uh, the story that's never told is the struggles that she had and how she was you know, working so hard to create this environment. And, uh, and no one believed in her. And then slowly but surely, by just the fact that she was able to accomplish what she accomplished, you know, more and more people came on board. So being here today with Avi and knowing that uh, there are parents that are looking out for their children no matter what their child decides to do in life, no matter where they are religious-wise, is such an important thing because at the end of the day, you know, a child needs that security, needs the home, and that's really what, what Avi's all about. And I'm, I can only say that for all the people that work in my world, Avi's a tremendous inspiration, and I want to thank Avi for that. Uh, this evening we have a very, very unique opportunity and we always hear many speeches of inspiration. We always hear about, uh, I know recently Avi circulated uh, a video of a woman on the West Coast who unfortunately went through so much till, uh, I don't know if any of you saw it, any, anyone saw the video of it? Okay, so you know, she's still young, she has a whole life ahead of her and uh, thank God she got the support that she needed. Uh, in my work, when I was going around, you know, trying to, you know, make sure the organization, my organization, you know, which is my baby and so important to me, and when I sit in front of Baal Batim and I speak to them and I say, listen, this is what I'm trying to do, you know, some people can understand, some people can't understand. We all know that no one can really understand what it's like when a child decides that, you know, this world is not for them, they want to go elsewhere. 
And uh, one of the people that I met that understood so well about you know, the concepts of making sure that uh, we always have an opportunity to remain part of the community <coughs> is someone that I met. And I said to him, I said, let me ask you a question. You know, you understand all this. How do you understand all this? And uh, I, can I use your name? Can I? Okay, great. One of the most unique people I've ever met in my entire career of, of doing this type of work and the work that's so important uh, was an individual who agreed not only to tell me his story about the suffering that he went through, and I want to tell you, for people in my line of work, I'm a fundraiser, okay? And you get to some coming for saying this, but you know, his name resonates with in the entire fundraising community as a person who's not only about Chesed, he's about Seichel, he's someone that you can sit down and have a conversation with. He's literally put yeshivas on the map, he's helped organizations like you would never believe. So in my world, and in, many, in, in the world of many, he's a tremendous success. When I see that, and I know that he has a story, I felt that he's someone that's a true inspiration for anyone who not only wants to hear how someone actually succeeded on many different levels, he's an incredible family too, but also how each one of the children that we deal with in Project Nisora, and your children, whatever the situation is, to know that Mitzvah Hashem, everything should be good, everything should only get better, and Mitzvah Hashem, we should all see a lot of Without any further introduction, I'd like to invite Yitz to come stand in front of the group and to share with us a few words. Good evening, everybody, and thank you for coming out. It's Erev Yontif. I didn't expect so many people to be here tonight. Um, Avi asked me only early this afternoon if I'd come tonight. And I have no idea what I'm going to say in two minutes from now. But what I'm going to say is going to shock Avi, is going to shock many of you, and it's going to shock him to a point where he's going to ask himself why he invited me to come. And yet, at the end of the night, some of you will understand why I came. Background. I come from a family like many of yours. I grew up in Borough Park, two religious parents, war survivors, went to Hasidic Titan Shivas, had Payas as a little boy until I was 11 years old. I went to Bear Shmuel in Borough Park, Hassan Seifer, Yeshiva in Scranton, Miri Yeshiva, and I then went to Peche, became more modern. It was always Shomer Shabbat though. Because my parents were Holocaust survivors, because my mother worked in a sweatshop, um, I came home every day from Yeshiva to a neighbor's house. There was nobody home in my house. And one of my earliest childhood memories is a one of my earliest childhood memories is of coming home to a neighbor's house and being my neighbor's bed. I don't remember why I was in her bed, what I was doing in her bed, and I don't recall much of what really took place. But it's in my mind that every day I was in her bed. This was a neighbor of ours. Later on, when I was about 10 years old in Peche, I was one of the first victims of a well-known, what became a well-known child molester. Because we were the first victims, this particular child molester was not yet that brazen. He was just starting out on his career path of being a serial child molester. And I'm, I'm 60 years old. I just turned 60. 
And this goes back more than or approximately 50 years. So if you want to know what was going on 50 years ago, it's the same thing that's going on now, except that nobody really talked about it. But I remember that in the Pirche, my group of Pirche guys, we talked to ourselves, amongst ourselves, and thinking, you know, what should we do? But we didn't do anything. We just thought that's normal. And it just so happened that this particular child molester, some of you will know who he is just by the way I'm describing him, went on to have a long and distinguished career as a child molester for about 35 years because nobody really stopped him. And among his many victims was a nephew of mine, which I did not know about until 40 years later. That particular nephew of mine told me only when I went to visit him in the psych ward. When he broke down, he told me that it all started when he was molested in a very severe way by the same individual. And that when he went to his parents, when he went to his brother, I should say, first for help, his brother didn't believe him. Nobody got up to help him. Nobody came to his defense. And he, became, he began to see himself as a person maybe deserving of what he was going through. Ultimately, it led to some paranoia and schizophrenia, and, and you know, his whole life unraveled. He ended up in a psych ward, and he still resides there today in some sort of a home. And this happens because back then, nobody wanted to talk about what was really going on. And it's also the fault, frankly, of my sister and brother-in-law, who also did not believe, or did not want to believe, that such a thing was possible. That a Rebbe in yeshiva could possibly be involved in this type of behavior. Now I left out that when I was also, since I was always in the Pirche, always hanging around the Pirche, um, my brother and I, so let's, at this point I'm maybe nine, and my brother is seven. Another individual, a teenager at that time, also physically <coughs> uh, molested us, threatened us that if we talked to anybody, he would kill us, throw us in the furnace. <laughs> when you're that young, it's very traumatizing. So, and I myself didn't seek help. I myself kept all this inside of me. And I myself went through life holding on to this. And believe it or not, it took until very recently, very recently, for me to go seek the help I needed to finally resolve these unresolved issues. And how did it affect my life? It affected my life in many ways to a point where I actually ended up, I was arrested and I spent 18 months in prison. This is the part of our no. Um, not because of anything to do outwardly and directly but my whole life spun out of control and was always out of control because while I was maintaining sanity and normalcy on one side, a part of me still had unresolved issues that were never properly addressed. I couldn't talk to my parents. My father was sitting and learning at Dafyombi at night. My father's life was all about struggling for the family and then going to learn. Whenever I turned around, he was good at learning his daf. He only finished shots 11 times. 
but we never had a conversation ever about what was going on. And of course I had unresolved anger issues as a result of what happened to me. So I was a difficult child as well. Um, and in the old European way, it was his way or the highway. And not that I was thrown out of the house, but I was always threatened with being thrown out of the house. Instead, they threw me into yeshiva dormitories. I was the only guy living in Barapak, but dorming in Mary Yeshiva, two miles away. First they sent me to Scranton, then to Mary Yeshiva, but I was bouncing around to a point where, as I said, I was leading a semi-normal life, yet I had these issues lurking in my background, which did not allow me fully to lead a very normal life. And as I said, only very recently, this past year, that I finally decided it was my turn to go speak to somebody professionally and disclose this information. In fact, I'm disclosing information to you tonight that neither my wife knows nor my five children know. This has never been discussed before. But when I met Ari two weeks ago in my house on a separate issue, and he told me what he's working with, and the group that he talks to, and the kids he talks to, and the parents he talks to, I thought, maybe this is my calling, maybe it's time for me to come out, and maybe this is my therapy. I'm going to have to thank you and give you all innovation for listening to my story. Because I have the opportunity to tell you as parents that if your children are going through issues, you need to go home and talk to them openly, and accept them for what they are, and try to work with them with love and acceptance, because by shunning them, and by locking them out, and by not talking to them, and by not addressing the issue, even though it's a foreign concept to you, even though you can't cop at all that your kid is either doing drugs, or he's drinking, or he's not Shomish Shabbos, or he's wearing an earring, or she's running around, not the way your parents knew or your grandparents knew. It's all Narishkeit. Forget about the Lavush, and forget about everything else. You need to really understand that these kids are doing that because something else is lurking in their backgrounds. And if it doesn't get resolved, it's going to fester like it festered with me, and one day something really, really big and terrible is going to happen. And a lot of it, I believe, not all of it, a lot of it goes back to an issue of abuse someplace. Not always sexual abuse, not always from a Rebbe, not always from a camp director, not always from a, from a principal, not always in the mikvah. Something happens somewhere along the line that's eating away at these kids, that's causing them, in my view, anyway, to lash out in a way that's foreign to the parents, but the parents know not how to accept and how to deal and how to grapple with these issues. And the fact that you're all here looking at me and listening to these stories means some, everybody has something in common tonight. Hatzada Shabbat Shabbat is that we're all here together. And I'm telling you that my life story, I believe today, now that I finally went to some therapy, I believe, I believe really believe, that it all goes back to the time in my life when I had three separate incidents where I was physically abused by somebody who had sort of like dominion over me 
took advantage of me as a kid, and that I had no one to turn to and no one to talk to. So my life kept going, and on the one hand, as I said, I kept making believe it was a normal life. And I got married, and I am married, um, although late, and I'm still married to my wife 27 years later, and I was able actually to raise my five kids despite my own illnesses and my own issues, I listened so carefully to each of my kids whenever a problem arose that, thank God, none of my kids suffer what I suffer through. And they're all on the straight path. So now, what will be later, I don't know. But on the other hand, my own life has not been resolved. And it caused me to always find myself in trouble. And I believe... It's somehow, somewhere, all connected. And, um, you know, for many years I have been involved in an organization called Priority One, which I believe was one of the first organizations in the five towns that dealt with also children who didn't want to go to yeshiva, who the parents looked at as what they used to call me an oizbar, you know? In fact, I call myself today the oizbar for Rov. As a joke, <laughs> I write a column tape under the title Eisvarf Aruv because that's what everyone called me growing up. So I became the Eisvarf. But I, um, I became involved years ago in Priority One. Uh, I lived in the five towns for the last 25 years. In fact, I recognize a few faces. I don't know who you are, but I recognize <coughs> a few five towns faces. And um, I would also go there and volunteer to speak to some of the kids just for them to see that you could, be, you could be successful even if you were not learning yeshiva all day, even if you did not want to study the Mishnah Yisbal Per, even if you did not want to go to the Pichei rally, you could still become something. In fact, it took until, I think, last year, or two years ago, was it, when Yeshiva Darche Torah by us finally decided that, you know what, not everyone's going to be a Lamdan, and he made classes for Afah, a plumber, electrician, do something. It doesn't make a difference what you do, just be an active member of society. So I give this Rabbi Bender, I know I'm not supposed to mention names, but it's a good name. I, I mention his name because it took really until a few years ago for him to decide, guess what? He'll be something else. But that enables the children who are not fitting into the normal society to become something else where they're still productive members of society. So, some, some of you are going to have questions for me, and I could talk for hours about myself, but nobody wants to really hear my life story that much. My only real message from having spoken to so many children over the years, teenagers in particular, and knowing my own story as to what happened, I believe that all of these kids are angry and they're most angry because their parents, when they were angry, did not listen to what they had to say, did not accept them for what they were going through, and never got to the root of the problem, whatever the problem is. And therefore, they continue to lash out and run away and ultimately do things that you find repugnant and repulsive, and you can't possibly accept it because it's going to ruin the Shaduchim. What are the other children going to see? You know, it's going to ruin my household. What's the neighbor going to say? 
instead of accepting the child and saying, you know what, this is a special kid. He's not this kid, he's that kid. And loving that kid almost unconditionally and together trying to find a way to find help. Will it work for everybody? No. Each child is different. Some will ultimately listen. Some won't. Some will want to talk to you. Some won't. Some will not talk to you under any condition. You may need somebody else. But I find that there are klal, if you can validate the children and tell them it's okay, you'll get more communication. You know, one of my own kids recently, um, I had an issue, um, one of my kids just actually was in Yeshiva in Israel for the year, where my two other boys went as well, and he texted me that he wants to come home. My other two boys didn't want to come home at all. He wanted to come home. I said, you must be a real genius. You finished a whole curriculum in four months. It was six, eight months. But I didn't want to argue with him. I said, um, why do you want to come home? He says, learning's not for me. I said, well, learning's not for you, no problem. I said, just promise me you'll go to Minion every day and you'll get a job until you start college. He goes, I agree, I agree. The next day I flew him home. Because I don't want to force him to be someplace he doesn't want to be. Like my parents forced me to be someplace I didn't want to be. And I don't think that that society knew how to deal correctly. It was a difficult period of life, especially in the Hasidic world where it's, it's really like a shanda, it's some, you know, a bad apple in the house. What's it going to do? But the reality is you have to take that bad apple and shine it up and polish it up. And from a rough, you know, from a wild, from a little wild um, horse, you get a really good stallion who can run a race. You never know. You just have to channel the energy properly. So my overall and short message to you all, that no matter what you're going through with your child, no matter how and it's how difficult it is for you as a parent to want to accept that such a thing can happen in your household. And no matter how embarrassed you may be that somebody else may hear that your child is not exactly what your other children are, or how it may affect potentially what people are going to say in shul, or the shatran is going to say, oh, he's got the special needs kid on the side. You know, that kid's a bum. That kid's a drug addict. <coughs> Work with the kid. Even if he comes home with an earring, she comes home in pants. Slowly, 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 with love, you're going to get them back. I've seen it happen so many times in my own life. We invite kids like this to the house. I've seen it slowly, 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 they catch on. And if these concepts are difficult, I'm telling you, open up your hearts and open up your eyes and realize that the other way is not working. Because the other way, the kids leave the household, the kids run away, the kids get involved with people they should not be involved with, they get involved with gangs, they get involved with, with, with I don't want to say, really unspeakable things, including drugs, including rampant sex, including shacking up. Every, everything you can imagine happens when kids running and somebody's there to hop the kid up at a very vulnerable time. I needn't tell it to you because... Some of you understand this concept. And at that point, it's more of a sending out the rescue mission. It's a search and recovery mission, as opposed to now you can still hold on and hold on and try as hard as you can to find some way of communicating with these kids. 
I'm going to pause here for a second just to get a drink of water. And if anybody has a question, please raise your hand and ask me anything you want to ask me. I, I have a statement. Go ahead. Recommendation and the best way to get your child to open up to you about these about these uh, incidents that may have happened to them. Um, again, first of all, I'm not a psychiatrist and I have no credentials. Uh, That's why we like it. I only have experience. I have my own experience as to what I didn't do also for many years. And I said, I'm I'm a lucky guy today. I'm lucky that I never fell into drugs and I never fell into drinking. But I have friends whose kids have, that I know. Like, I was asked to intervene for my kids' friends because they would talk to me before they would talk to their own parents. So sometimes, initially, you may need someone else to do the talking for you. They may not initially be open, especially if they left because they felt they were not loved at home or they felt that you shunned them to a point or ostracized them to a point where they were so different and so outcast that you will never understand as a mother what I'm going through. You'll never, you'll never help me. So you may, you, they, that kid may have a friend of yours that they'd rather talk to initially that they will be more open with. I found that to work. I've talked to my kids, my friends' children, and they have talked to me and opened up to me even though they knew I'm going to be reporting back to the parents. They still had an easier time telling me what's going on in their lives than they had telling their own parents. It's embarrassing, especially if it comes to abuse. If a child was abused sexually or molested physically in any way, shape, or form, they already feel downtrodden. They already feel badly about themselves. They already feel like they're not deserving and they already feel different than the other children in the family. They just don't feel right about themselves, so they bring everything else down with them, and they begin to lash out. So unless you're able to say it and say, listen to me, I know what you're going through. I know what abuse is. I myself wasn't, but my friend was. You have to sort of let them know that you can really put yourself in their shoes to help them understand that you, you really understand it. Not that you say you understand it, but you, you can really, really relate to what potentially might have gone on. And I'll tell you, it's, I'm not sure, again, I don't know any of you, and I don't know what is irking or what's, why you're all here, but obviously something's wrong someplace in the household where one, or two, where one of the children, hopefully only one, is going through a phase right now where, where they have gone to you off the deep end. And I tell you, when they've gone off the deep end, it's because they have sunk so low in their own self-esteem that they do crazy things to build up their esteem in artificial ways. And those artificial ways usually include drinking and drugging and, 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 and sexual acts with others that they shouldn't be with. That's what happens, because they feel like that's what they deserve. Yes? So you were saying it, that you didn't do drugs and alcohol and you kept Shabbos. Why? Um, I myself 
<coughs> I live through humor. So I have used humor as a tool um, wherever I speak or my writing, I've used humor, and my humor has sort of masked um, my ability for years. So I would make jokes and I'd make references. Even today, I write a column every week, and which is widely distributed, it goes to hundreds of thousands of people. And I make a lot of references, even today, to the Rebbe with the Stecken, you know, with the wrong Stecken, about abuse. I never really touched upon it really heavily until this past Shabbos, actually. Uh, this past weekend, a fellow named Rabbi Yanki Horowitz out of Muncie, he runs an organization, I think, called the Project Yes. So he, he wrote to me, asking me if I would give a plug to his books. He's written a few books now about child safety. And his English version book had sold about 25,000 copies, and he asked me if I'd give him a plug. So I wrote in my Hadama that I'm giving a plug to Bayanki Horowitz about a topic I never know about. And I've gotten already over 500 comments from my readers asking me if I'm coming out. <laughs> With this, they want to know if I was abused. So the first time I actually talked about it, I don't know what got into me to finally put that sentence in, but some of my own coming out. But you asked me why I kept Shabbos? Um, frankly, I didn't know how not to keep Shabbos. Like, my foundation was maybe too strong, so even if the second floor and third floor were shaking, um, I just never left the fold complete. I left it where my father was concerned, you know, compared to the Hasidish um, ways he wanted me to go in, although he himself was not a Hasid, but he, he never envisioned a modern son. Um, and I never did drugs because I didn't really, my personality, my own personality was upbeat and outgoing. And I didn't really feel the need to do drugs. All of my friends' kids, or my friends who actually drink even today, I don't drink any alcohol either, um, they all drank to change their personality. Sorry, I didn't get that. Neither <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Is that Siri or is that the male version? <laughs> um, so. So to me personally, drugs didn't do it, but I had other vices. Don't think I grew up as a maloch. It just so happens that in my time, you know, again, I'm just turned 60, so I was growing up in the 60s. Uh, my, my friends just did not drink, and my friends did not do drugs. Um, so I was never really, I never had a type of birth. So I had other manifestations of where my own abuse caused me to do other things, cut corners, always did things now, you know, that I should not have done because I was cutting yeshiva, I was riding a bicycle, you know, delivering groceries when I was a little boy, I took a train to the World's Fair. I did my own crazy stuff, but back then there were, it was before drugs. So I don't feel the need for drugs. I feel the kids who take drugs today, again, they are looking for answers because they cannot communicate properly with their parents either because they're embarrassed on their own that they are different, and, or because you made them feel different in some way by not trying your hardest to get them to speak to you about what's going on. And you're not breaking down and saying, listen, I went to a tsarist and I, and I can relate and I, and I studied and I know somebody. You know, 
whatever it is you have to say to get them to talk to you. That's my story. Anybody else? Um, I have a question, a follow-up yeah. question. You're saying that, in a sense, that if we know that abuse happened, how to get them to speak is to say that, oh, we understand abuse. But let's say we don't know abuse happened. We know something's wrong, but we don't know what it is. Um, you think abuse happened, or you just... We don't know. We have no idea. We know she's doing crazy things, but we don't know that abuse happened. Right. Does she have a friend that she talks to regularly? Yeah. So, somehow... But the friend is doing crazy things, too. Oh. <laughs> yeah. It's not the person she's going to confide in. Listen, sometimes you'll need an intermediary at first. Now, I, 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 Ari, I guess this is what you guys do here. I'm, I'm, I assume this is what your organization does. You reach out to these kids? Yeah, I mean, we reach out to the kids, but, uh, you know, it, uh, at the end of the day, the parents, you know, uh, will always find that uh, in the beginning, especially, there's going to be kind of like a resistance because they're seen as more like the authoritative figure in their life and they want to be free. But over time, as they develop more of a trust, and this is something Avi talks about all the time, and they feel like this is their secure place and that they could talk about it and they're not going to get any pushback. Every child wants to talk. There's no question about it. The question is who they talk to. And so when they're ready to talk, you want to be the one that they actually talk to. So Yeah, I mean, you have to create somehow the, a loving environment, and you need a safe place for them to come and talk. I, I, I'm looking around the room. I see it's a really, like, it's a, it's a yeshivasha, chatzidasha type crowd, although we're not immune in the young Israel community to these things. <laughs> the same things go on by us as happened here. Um, the kid, I find that the, ch- the ones I talk to anyway, I talk to them, when I bring kids like this to my house, when I, which is quite often, I talk to them like I'm one of them. And uh, I sort of get them to open up to me by talking their language. And again, maybe they think I'm cool because I'm talking the way th- they talk. I just have a disarming way um, where they just talk to me. And slowly, you know, they, they come back on their own. <coughs> I don't know what it is myself. But it, it, it is true. I mean, to a, a, anybody but the parent, it's, it's a lot easier. I mean, they can be cool. They can become cool. They, you know, it can be a 50-year-old, 50-year uh, age difference. They can associate possibly that much quicker to cool than a parent is never cool. That's true. Cool I'm, I'm not cool to my so, kids so, either. So, 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 yeah, the same thing you can do for somebody else is much harder to do for your kid. For, on, on that, but we have a lot of us have done that. It takes a lot of years, you know, for us. Uh, we break through some quicker than others, but it takes I a very long time. There's a, there's a there's a parent that comes here, and their daughter is very is friends with our daughter. And I think they're here a year and a half or a year, and that their daughter disclosed to the mother about a half a year ago something that we knew three years ago, which that girl disclosed to our daughter. So they connect to people that they perceive as understanding them. Yeah. Very quickly. And, you know, in parents, it takes a very long time to get to that level. By the way, I could not agree with you more. I think you're absolutely right. So you can only give support. No, right. you're like you're like the air support and then you have the ground forces. Yeah, yeah. So on the air support, all you can really do is love them unconditionally and say I'm willing to accept you as you are, even though it's killing you. 
even though, you know, when you walk into shul and, and, and your son or your daughter are at your side and they look so different, it's embarrassing. You have to hold your head up high and just say, it's my, it's my child, I will love them unconditionally. That's all you can do until they get to a point where they're really prepared to open up to you. Um, there are no magic bullets here tonight. It's not like you're popping a pill and your kid's coming home tomorrow and say, yeah. We had our neurologist. That's going to be the shocking thing. You're going to drop a little bit of <laughs> <laughs> You know, I have, I have a nephew. I have a nephew. It's a very crazy story. This particular nephew was also abused by a Rebbe in the yeshiva. I didn't know. And he's a very, very smart boy. When he turned about, um, after high school, he went to Neri Yisrael for a year. After Neri Yisrael, he comes home in the middle of the year, and he says to his parents, I don't want to be religious anymore. I thought about it. I don't know why God put me in this world. God had no right to bring me, and you had no right to have, to have me. You took away my, my bechira, my choice, and decided to become completely irreligious. Completely irreligious. My father, an old European, was so desperate that he offered to buy my nephew a new car. Called the Koifana car. If my father says he's gonna buy someone a car by giving someone a hundred million dollars, I had a nickel a week allowance. So my nephew um, goes with him all the way to the car dealership. And then he says to him, you know Zaidi, I I can't do it. I'm not gonna be Sharma Shabbat just because you buy me a car. He had the intellectual honesty to say I can't do it. And my father, he must have been happy too, put the money back in his pockets. But listen to what happened at the end with this guy. He enrolled in medical school. He went to Mount Sinai Medical School. As I said, he's a smart boy. And there he met a girl from a home that was so fried, they knew nothing about Yiddishkeit. They were Jewish by name. And he announces to the family that he's getting married. My sister was so embarrassed, she didn't tell any of her friends that her son is marrying a girl from no background. So she invited a few friends to come to Florida. I myself never met the girl either. We all fly to Florida for this wedding in Fort Lauderdale. And I tell you that the girl's family could not say the bracha under the chuppah. They, they gave him cards, you know, with the um, sheva brachas, you know, phonetically spelled out. The girl had no background, but something happened just before they got married. Some rabbits in the Upper West Side, I forgot her name right now. There's an organization in the Upper West Side that you Not Hineni? Rabbits and Cones? Rabbits and Cones, I think. Got a hold of this girl, just called her up because she heard her name. She said, I know you're getting married, and I know you're not religious, and it's fine that you're not religious, but I would like you to do me a favor. I'd like you to come with me to the mikvah before you get married. For some reason, this girl said, yes, I'll go with you to the mikvah. And they went to the mikvah. I did not know this until later. At the wedding, at the wedding, I told you it was completely, it was a, it had a rabbi, of course, and my sister was, my father, you can imagine the shock of my father when the, when the black DJ came out and started dancing the electric slide. <laughs> I, had to, I had to pick him up off the floor. So, you know, you talk about old, Haimashayid, you know, Sapinka. Anyway, roll forward a few months after the wedding. She calls the Rebetzin on her own, this new niece of mine, and she says, I'd like to meet you again. 
Shatana, I've been thinking about that experience. I just want to roll forward. I don't want to tell you the whole story, but today, today, it's years later, she, she, not he, she, from no background, continued to meet with this rabbit in Cone and slowly started talking to her. She became religious, made my nephew religious. The kids are payous. She's a doctor. He's a doctor. They live in Waterbury, Connecticut. He's, he's a town doctor. They treat everybody in the yeshiva there. And then he called my father several years later. He says, I'm coming for Shavuos. I want to learn with you Shavuos night to make up for the years when I wasn't religious at all. And he didn't get the car. Right. Yeah, it was, I'm telling you, crazy, crazy stories. So you just don't know where, it's, where the help's going to come from. But the point was that my sister did at that point with this particular son, with this son, she accepted him for what he was. She knew he was not religious. She knew he had no interest. She said, just please, when you come to the house for Shabbos, just please act respectfully. And he did just that. He'd come home for Shabbos, and he would even say it's about Torah at the table. He didn't believe it. He hated it. But he made believe for the Shabbos table respectfully. And she and my brother-in-law accepted her and him. And today I'm telling you that the kids have, the boys have payas. All the kids are from. He's from, she wears a shaitel today. It's crazy. I'm telling you it's crazy. So it can come from any place, but it starts with acceptance. You have to sort of accept them right now and let them know that they can be who they are until they figure out who they're going to be later. Now, if they won't talk to you, which will happen, I had a friend, one of my friend's kids threatened to kill his mother. And he was in such a crazy state where she was always yelling at him, she was afraid to go home. Guess what? That boy got married, and he wears a black hat today, and he just had a second child. And he just found a girl that calmed him down from a, you know, a little bit more modern family. And today, said he wears a black hat and his tits are around again. It's, it's just, there are success stories, a lot of them. And each one of them could be one of your kids. Not that you only black hats and tits out. But um, at, at any level, you just have to find a way to kill them with love. That's what I'm finding. Yes. I hope it's okay if I ask you <clears throat> if you can put yourself back to when you were nine years old and you had gone through this trauma. Why was it that you weren't able to talk to anybody? I, you know, I think about that often, and I, I don't really know, and I couldn't talk about it until I was 55. I started writing 55, and I started making little jokes, you know, more and more jokes about it. And I think when I was nine years old, first of all, the first guy who, who molested my brother and I, my brother and me, he threatened us. The, the Rebbe, the Pechei leader, at that point, I wanted to belong in Pechei. Like, I felt like I was a macher. I was hanging around with the leaders. I was a kid, and because I had access, that was the price of access. That I was a tumbler, you know. I got to give out the candy. You know, we would give out the, the red dots or the Turkish taffy. <laughs> Uh, if you remember those things. Huh? The Turkish Taffy, Vanamo. So, yeah, it was a company coming out of Dalton. Anyway, 
So I don't know why I never ran to anybody. I guess I was either embarrassed. No one would believe you anyway. Uh, you're probably right. Nobody would have believed me then. And that's what happened to my other nephew. What? That Rebbe? He's so respected. Brother Justice, Nick Rob, Marley. Uh, listen, unfortunately, we had in our community, as you know, there was a principal here locally that protected one of these Rebbe's for many, many years, for 30 years. And then you wonder when you read in the papers about the Catholic Church, why does it take, a guy's coming out 30 years later with an abuse story? A guy suing some, running around now saying this Rebbe abused him 30 years ago? It's, it's festering there. It's festering and it's festering and it's festering. And one day, some people can pick up their lives and deal around it. And some people, they break down immediately and they feel like, my parents will never believe me. They'll never support me. Maybe that's what I deserve. Maybe that's what I am. So I don't really know because every kid's DNA is different. Some are starker. Some can pick up and you know, reboot themselves and some can't. But back then, I don't know why I didn't. My brother and I talk about it till today. And we know who it is. And we know where to find him. And um, in fact, I'll tell you, I... Uh, Get his address, we'll all be there now. That's right. <laughs> I, I, listen, I want to tell you... No, well, this particular... When I was nine years old, this, there was a fellow who came to the... Like, I was in Pecha, he was in Syria, so he was already a teenager. So, Master Shahaya, that... Pesach time, we, we typically go away to some hotel. And um, I'm in Las Vegas uh, at a program, substantial program, pretty fun program. And the rabbi of the program is a fellow from Los Angeles, also involved with troubled kids. His name is Rabbi Avi. Very nice fellow, Hasidish type fellow, with a, with a black hat, you know, round hat. And I look at his table, he has a huge table with Holzmishpacha. And I see at that table the guy who molested me when I was nine years old. You know, Bakhozai you know, looking around and say, Oh my god, my whole Pesach was ruined. I call my brother who's in New York, I said, Avi, I see the guy. I tell him who it is. We know his name till today. And I'm thinking, should I approach him? Should I approach him? I did not. I chickened out. And this is about four years ago. Well that's around when you started. A year, listen to what happened a year later. I went back to Las Vegas a year later. I see the same guy. But it was making me crazy. Meanwhile, I had gotten friendly with this rabbi who ran the program, Rabbi Avi. And I call him over to talk to him. And I start talking to him about what he does and how he helps teenagers and he helps kids. And I said, listen, this is my story. I was abused as a nine-year-old boy. And he says to me, me who? You know, I tell him, it's your father-in-law. So it turned out to be this guy, Schwer. Now, he tells me he, the, the guy was married on his, I think, third or fourth marriage. I forgot what number of marriage was on, so he was his father-in-law. Not the original father. Anyway, I'm embarrassed to tell you, but till today we have not yet approached him. But I, I have now been able to talk about it. That took me a long time. So I think the longer it goes, and the longer it's unresolved, the more it festers. And it leads to some problem somewhere. So if it's not drinking, and it's not drugs, and it's not sex, there's other issues. I had other issues. Someplace, it's like the leak in the hose. 
you cover up here and you cover up here, someplace it's going to come out. And I am sure today that what happened in my lifetime or guided me in my lifetime were these unresolved issues, which I'm still trying to resolve today. So, you know, we're here tonight on Erev Yantif, and you should be home cleaning up. I, I guess it's a night off, everybody. Um, because the tsar is so big and so strong, and you so don't know what to do. So this is like a Gavaldi, a little support group, where everybody's in the same boat, and everybody has a particular issue that they want to talk about. I don't have all the answers, and I don't know why it didn't come out. And it bothers me till today that I have not gone my brother and I to this guy and say, you know what, what you did to us uh, 51 years ago was completely wrong. And then sometimes I actually have Rachmanus on the guy. Like, I personally have Rachmanus on a particular child molester that I know. Because I felt that he's sick. I'm angry at the people who knew that let it go. Like, I believe it's an illness. But... Do you think it's from the last time? That guy? Yeah. It doesn't get healed. I don't think he gets healed. I is think he's in society at the present moment. He's in society, yes. Is he Why is it to society? I don't know. I, I have not seen him. I don't, I, I don't know. I don't believe it's just one. You don't get healed. No, but you have the obligation. You have the obligation. No, somebody went public. So but he shouldn't continue doing this. Yes, but somebody. No, no. People went public. This particular story, people went public with. It took a couple of years. I don't know what his limitations are, if he's allowed to be around children. In fact, I was sitting this morning at a bris in uh, five towns of Woodmere, and the rabbi of the shul sat down next to me, and he was telling me that he got a call just today about a teacher in a school, I forget where, that was just accused of, being a of dealing in child pornography. He's waiting to be indicted. And now the question is, he wants to have a Seder. And who's going to take him into the house? He can't be around kids. Nobody wants to have him around kids. So these are the kinds of questions that come up in shuls. Another rabbi told me recently that there's a list that goes around of, uh, of uh, child abusers. There's a list of some sort that gets published by the, gov by the state. And he shows me on the list. He says, what should I do with this? There's a guy in my shul, he shows to me. A member of the shul that has uh, just pled guilty to a class two uh, felony of child abuse of some sort, and he's in our shul. Uh, what to do? Do you let him into shul? Not let him into shul. Um, these are not simple issues. These are not simple issues. They're very difficult issues. Uh, do you let him in supervision? Do you throw him out of the community? Do you, do you send him to help? There's so many questions that are above my pay grade. And that was the poor rabbis deal with this every single day. This stuff like going on every day like this. And that's why I give guys like uh, Yanki Horowitz uh, in Muncie so much credit because he goes out to the courthouses and he fights not to protect these abusers, but to make sure that they get sent away or they get sent for help. So his, his godless is that he's making people talk about the issues. And he's not afraid of the Hasidic community rallying around the perpetrator and making the parents of the abused child feel like they're being uh, they're being moister. They're being um, you're being a moister in my community. How can you do such a thing? You're making them feel bad when the guy is abusing his child. So these issues are very complicated, and I can't really understand them. I only know 
for myself, for my brother, for my nephew, for my other nephew, from kids I've spoken to, that it's so critical to try to get someone to talk to the kid and to open up early and seek the help to find, to make sure the kid knows it was okay, there wasn't his fault, there wasn't abuse, and somehow to find a way to move on. Life can never be normal again for these kids, but there's a new normal. And the new normal, in that world we can cope. You have to accept your children to be in the new normal. Normal, what you want, is out the window. It may be back later. For now, that normal is gone. Accept what they are today as the new standard of normal and find a way, and I don't know the way myself for all of them, but I do know a few good cases where it has worked. Will it work for everybody? Nothing works for everybody. One person succeeds in a headache with Tylenol, another one with Excedrin, another one with Advil, another one with, with uh, some other pill. Nothing is for everybody. Anybody else? I, I, just, I just want to address one thing that a couple people asked, and uh, it, it's, it's, it's a common question that they have, and actually I speak to Avi about this a lot, when, when I can get him on the phone. <laughs> um, you know, some people ask me all the time, especially when I'm dealing with uh, individuals, like I said, you know, a big part of what I do for the organization is, is fundraising. And I have to sit in front of all about them and I have to talk to them about what we're doing about the schools and who it is, the people that we're working with, etc. And I always have the same question asked me at least once a day, sometimes five times a day. And that is, you know, when I was a kid, we also had problems. We also were at risk. We also had an interest in doing crazy things. But look what the kids are doing today. They're doing A, B, and C when we only did, you know, obviously there's a lacking in their interest in Yiddishkeit. And, and, and it's a very simple answer. There used to be at meetings for kids at risk, they used to always say, there's the 80% rule. 80, what that meant was, there's the two rules. There's the 80% rule and there's a the 90% rule. The 90% rule means that the chinuf system is incredible for 90% of the kids. It doesn't work for 10% of the kids. You know, what can you do? Well, hopefully work on that. But it works for 90% of the kids, so don't knock it. Okay, I get that from different towns that I go to all the time, uh, particularly one town south of here, which is located in New Jersey. Uh, the other rule is the 80% rule. The 80% rule is that 80% of kids, when they go out, they're going to come back. And that's something that there's yeshivas in Eretz Yisrael that were literally 80 to 100, 150 kids of kids that were off of there between the ages of 18 and 19, 18 and 20. And what they don't realize is that they were riding a wave because the reality is that because these kids were in places that they felt insecure or they were immature, usually a kid starts hitting a maturity level when he's 18, 19, he starts coming around and these yeshivas happen to be in the right place at the right time. It's not about the, the Torah and the Chinuch and the base Medrash. It has nothing to do with that. You know, I always, I always, uh, always you know, hear from some survivors you know, when I go to Florida because a lot of the things we do to bring kids back is to teach them about history in general. And that's where we push, you know, history education as one of our components. You know, all these yeshivas are learn to teach kids history because it's something that if they go away, it's always something to take with them, where they're from, you know, what they're a part of, how they're part of the Masera. And I had survivors tell me that you know, we are all from today because at the end of the war, and I shared this with Avi once, at the end of the war, we were so desperate, we would have taken any, we were in the DP camps, we were survivors. You know, if the Red Crescent was there to give out all the food, we'd be, you know, well, today we'd all be Muslim. And that's the reality. You can't, you can't fight that. And that's why when I talk about the 80% rule and the yeshivas that were sitting there that had these kids there that were totally lost, when they finally came to their senses that they were in yeshiva 
And all of a sudden they went, oh, this is how I'm going to be secure. This is how I'm going to be part of a community. These yeshiva had success rates. But today, all these yeshivas are no longer. Most yeshivas have closed down. The other ones are kind of reinventing, reinventing themselves, different types of kids, because today, a kid who was off, this is what I want to address, the 80%, the 80%, when we 80% of kids eventually will come back, it's not true anymore. 80% of kids are not coming back. Because, you know, in Yitz's days and in the days of my father and, you know, and his friends and all these stories, the reality is that in those days, these kids had really had nowhere to go. You know, their security came from, you know, the house, and they were afraid to go anywhere. Today, besides Facebook coming around, the past year and a half has changed everything because Facebook has what's called location-based uh, you probably know what, with location-based um, affiliation with your name. Once a kid puts on their, on their Facebook account where they are at all times, when you kick a kid out of yeshiva, you know, when I was kicked out, I was kicked out of many yeshivas. You know, I always, as a kid, thro- grew up thinking a kolel was a place you wait till you get into your next yeshiva. Until I finally realized, you know, the kolel was one place my parents put me there, you know, to learn the kabrusas. I, I, I had this one shetel prepared to get into my next yeshiva. I remember till today about that. I, I knew it so well. She was like, wow, and you were thrown out of somewhere? So anyways, so Chazari, see, helps. But the reality is that when you, when you were at Yeshiva in those days, you were lonely, and you couldn't wait to get into the next place. That's why today I have so many friends, because I've been, I was in so many different Yeshivas. But today, when you kick a kid out of Yeshiva, he's not so lonely anymore. He actually was lonelier in Yeshiva than when he is now out of Yeshiva, because all of a sudden he has a whole network of individuals, and I see this. I'm on a WhatsApp group for young kids that I somehow got onto, and it's incredible to see what's going on. I have to think my phone, if I keep it on at four, five, six in the morning, it's still ticking away. We're meeting up here, we're going here, we're going there. You know what? You gotta be happy for them a little bit because they have a little bit of a support system, but it's sad because the reality is that we know now that they see that there's a world on the outside that they can go to. We were taught as kids, the guy hates you, you know, whatever, you were scared. You know, even though, I, I imagine when you get to a saying, you went to the World's Fair, you were scared, you know, when you were there, you couldn't wait to get back home. You know, you went somewhere exciting. My father always talks about it. You know, but today, kids, they literally, they go to the city, and they, they're there. I, I, I was talking to a kid. He went to the city months of Shabbos. I said, what time did you come, time did you come back? We came back at 6. I said, 6, 6 in the morning? Yeah, 6 afternoon on Tuesday. I'm like, that's incredible. Where did you go? Oh, we met some guys. And that, there was a girl we had that ran away to Nolan. with a girl we ran, we had, we, that we met, um, that we were dealing with. She, she went to Florida. She ran off the, to Florida with her boyfriend. And... The craziest thing is that, and of course this always happens, you give them a couple weeks together, it doesn't work out. You know, the lucky ones are actually the ones that work out, so she's, you know, finding a stable environment. But this girl, of course, after a couple weeks, didn't work out, and she came back. So I was curious to know, together with one of, uh, one of our counselors, where exactly did she go, and who was this guy? And she was just the guy for three weeks. All she knew was his name was Mayor. She did not know his last name. And that's the society we're dealing with today. The reality is that their, their concept of friends, okay, when he talks about friends, he's talking about his chaburah, and they, they, I'm sure until today, a lot of them have to do with each other, all right? These kids have friends. You know, you talk to a kid today, oh, my friends are coming. You know, you find out the friends, they literally met three seconds before you showed up there because they're friends now. And, and, and one other thing, I don't know, if, does anyone know there's, you know, Project Star recently just started to do with this guy, AJ. Anyone know who this boy AJ is? There's a, there's a black kid, okay, he's not Jewish, he lives near Prospect Park, he's been hanging out on a regular basis with Jewish girls, okay, and the sad part is that, you know, he's so successful at this, and he's already, he's got like, you know, 30 girls following him around, you know, we did everything we can to locate this guy, we actually nailed him down on Avenue J uh, about two weeks ago, and we actually gave him all these incentives to kind of like take a hike, and he's going with it, you know, it's money well spent, he's not hanging out in different areas, 
when I try to find out like what was the whole concept of how this guy became so popular, it's because all it took is one or two girls to just get friendly with this guy. They said, oh, you know, Shira and, and Khan are friendly with him. He must be an okay guy. So you have this trust system that builds up beyond, and the reality is that maybe one day they will realize that we are the greatest community in the world and they will come back to us. But it's not like it used to be where you got burnt out and you came back. Here today, there's so many new people you keep meeting that by the time you realize it's problematic, you're talking about years. So the important thing is, like what Yitz was saying, and, and Avi talks about all the time, and the reality is that you got, they are looking for a place that's home. Okay? You know, a house is one thing, a home is something else. And you want that at the end of the day, all the crazy things that they're going to do it, and they're going to do it anyways, perhaps, at least at the end of the day, they have a place to come home. And, uh, and that's, that's the real focus for today. The 80% of all kids coming back is non-existent. I'm literally parading around town, you know, talking about this on a constant basis. And, uh, and that's what we have to realize. So I want to think... I want, no, I, yeah. want to, I want to close with one thing. I, I listened so carefully to every word you just said. I find that the kids today do need a safe haven. Like you need a place, sort of like a clubhouse, where they can come and hang and feel safe. And if there were places like this, rooms like this, where kids can come and hang here, and I'm not sure if they exist. Well, we have a place, oh, yeah, there's a place. You know what I'm saying? Because if you, if you can get one or two, then they bring their friends also. You know, I find this place, they don't ask me any questions, and, and they don't make judgments about me, and they let me be who I am. I find that once you have them in a safe place, you, you'll catch one, you'll catch two, and slow. You're not going to catch everybody, like you say. Right. But you need a place where these kids don't feel like they are different and left out and being locked out and being looked down by their siblings and by their parents and by the family as the black sheep. So whatever you guys are doing here at Masora, it's fantastic. Um, you hope you're picking up some success stories. I'm sure you are. Well, if anyone wants, he's just going to be around here for a little bit if you want to ask something to him um, personally. I just want to make, if I can make a comment. That, uh, I live in Woodmere. And first of all, I think that the, both of you, if I could respectfully recommend you read Avi's book. Because everyone here is on the way or well-trained with unconditional love for their children who are off the debt. It's a 700-page book, and it's it's well worth the investment. I don't know who you are exactly, but I live in Woodmere, and I just want to apologize to you. Not who you are specifically, but, and I'm not sure which young Israel, but there's been like a joke since I, we moved there that if you want to become president of the Young Israel, you have to have been in jail. So I've looked upon that like and those very pejoratively. And I just want to say that you've taught us where you didn't really, you only mentioned about a sentence or two that you spent 18 months in jail that I think you taught us that you can't judge and that there are extenuating circumstances they can lead a person, everyone thinks, oh, that person is just greedy. But everyone has to think now that, you know, there can be other reasons why people do things. And we just have to look at everyone with a good eye. Thank you. Uh, that, those are nice comments. Um, there are always, in every case, not just in a jail case, but even in a drug case, and even in an abuse case, you need to know more facts. Jumping to conclusions 
is never good. Um, and believe me, there's a lot of suffering that these kids went through. I went through, everybody goes through. But it's true, you, you learn, you really learn a lot uh, by listening and by not jumping to the conclusions. Thank and you. And then also just, you should know that there, and he spoke here recently, Mayor Seawald runs an organization called Jewish Community Watch, where they um, publicize those who are molesters. Um, and it's, you know, from all different, you know. It's a wall of shame. Wall of yeah. Well, it's, yeah. a, it's a website? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, and it's an organization where people can approach him and tell them about a molester, and they will investigate. And right. if they have a su sufficient amount of evidence, even absent um, conviction, they will put that person on the wall of shame, and then everyone should know that to be careful of that person. Yeah, I mean, that, that, that doesn't solve the problem of our own children, though. That's a good thing. But mostly, whoever's here tonight likely needs to find a solution to his or her own child and how to get them back into the fold of, in some way, in some normal fashion, so they can have a productive relationship with their children. And that's a, I, to me, that's the number one goal I always find. Like when I hear from a friend of mine that his kid ran away, it, you know, breaks my heart. I, I'm upset when my kid doesn't talk to me when I come home doesn't come down and say hello, so I can imagine what it's like um, when you have a child that's completely away from wh how you raised him or her. That must be hell for a parent. And uh, I, I know what it does, as I said, when it comes to you know, the school and the embarrassment and the shul and, and the community and the shaduchim and all the things that are part of the stigma today where people don't know how to say, you know what, they're dealing with it. No different than having a sick child, no different than having a child with cancer or some other developmental disease. You accept, you love, Miguel Vaita. But thank you. Well, it happens to be, again, thanks to Avi that he taught us all these uh, texts. Um, all the people, I mean, I can speak for myself, but I hear it from everybody here. People look up to us. We're not like, we, of course, it's not so pleasant and it's a little bit uncomfortable, but they always say, like, wow, wow. You know what these parents, how they are to their child, how they make care of the child and what they do and how they accept. That's how we, that's what we feel, how we're looked at. We don't feel like people look at us uncomfortable. I mean, that we should be uncomfortable because of people. People <coughs> admire us. Uh, that's great. Right. I think next time. Yeah, no, that's, that's fantastic. You, you've come such a long way in the way you feel about yourselves that you're able now to give that I, same I, enthusiasm. I remember when we make a shizuch, our Machatanam wanted to know if we're accepting of our child. That's what mattered to them to make the shidduch. Oh, excellent point. Excellent point, yes. Uh, one thing you mentioned that we should have um, a place for them to hang out. But all of us here have a place. Your house? Mm -hmm. Yes, their room. That's and that's somewhere where they go and they have everything and anything. And then we also have place addictions. My son is now addicted to me. <laughs> mm. To the point where in an interview they said, Oh, are you codependent on your mother? <laughs> <laughs> so so we all do that. I'm always saying to share with you because you're probably gonna go and speak to other people. That's great. And my son recently just got off marijuana. And uh, he actually told us that um, he told me that he was almost molested. And I just said, Oh, okay. Meanwhile he had been denying it because it was a neighbor. 
So how did we do it? By just closing our mouth, accepting him and loving him and giving him that handout. And his friends come over and I saw that the friends went from these awful people that you like you just check your jewelry and you're not pickpocketed and you hold your baby so they don't get molested to nice boys who were just in the same situation as my husband. But everything you said is what God says. Yeah, no, I I think It's a great story. You know what? You're just an example of what we've been talking about tonight. I'd like to say one point in a way. Uh, I agree with everything you said, the first priorities are children. We should focus on our children, to love them, give them. But it's very important to learn the element to care for other kids as well. And by having anyone that you know who is molesting or the danger and not supporting it, not saying it, you creating situations that others people do follow and continue by making stuff good. Yeah, hundred percent. You know, that's I know what you I know what you're referring to. I, I heard that before. I think we were referring to it before when you said that there's someone that you know of that's actually done things and is a, a well known person in the community. That's actually someone who did something to him. And he only knew that other people were dealing with this issue when it came out and he had gotten arrested and the whole story. And I actually asked kids once, if you ever met him, what would you do? What would you say to him? And I was shocked and he had said, You really need to get help. Right? That's yeah, I, I, th- I feel it's an illness. I mean, this guy was a molester for 35 years. Yeah, if you feel it's an illness, and still, and still dangerous to society, yeah. you gave her a responsibility on it. I, I don't know his situation today because the, the authorities are involved in his life. It's not our situation. One more point I would like to yeah. ask you personally is help for Yeshiva. He mentioned something about Brenda, but you a separate program, but that's a great topic about his thing. No problem. I'm here online if you need. You know what? You're my therapy, so I'm thanking you for your right. time. I want you to, I want to have some fun. First of all, uh, the amount of guts that somebody at your age and success <laughs> to get up here and talk about this in order to help people, I think, is, is astounding. No, we it's need not. more it's people really like you. I want to show off a little bit, and I want to, I want to show him that there's hope. What, what I do is I treat, I take, I, I, basically, everything that you said, some parents come to me, a lot of them hate their kids, a lot of them wish their kids would die. I only work when everybody else pretty much gives up on the situation with Pikuach uh, Nefesh, kids who are suicidal. Just a quick hand, how many of your kids were suicidal? Okay. How many of your kids were doing drugs? Okay, and what ha- how, many of you, how many of you did not like your kids at all and wanted them maybe almost like, just disappear? Cyanide. Cyanide, okay. <laughs> tell, us, tell us how you really feel. My mahalak <laughs> is to get to teach the parents to how to break through those walls to such a degree that the kids really feel comfortable right. being at home. And it's a little bit extreme because I teach them to embrace and support the bad stuff that they do which is very unique. So the way it works is when they come to me, there's usually years of, of battle and war, three to four or five years of, of fighting. And we have to undo all of that. And the way I do that is by bombing the wall, by bombing the wall that's between the parent and the child. Our bombs are things that we don't approve of that we're going to supply to you. Not, not, like, not like the sister asking the nephew to come and only come if they have respect. We don't do that. That's not the answer. That's, that's we do the opposite. And the, just to show you an idea, if we could just go around just quickly, if everybody could just say what their first bomb was. In other words, it starts off with a beautiful letter 
that basically says, Mommy and I have been doing a lot of thinking. We both realize that you've been through so much and we haven't been there for you as we should have been. And this beautiful letter of pledging unconditional love and support, we will always be here. You will, we will always be here for you. You will always be part of our family. We will never turn our backs on you. But it comes with a gift that forces the child to believe that, oh my God, what happened to my parents? Like, this can't be. And then they really believe it, and that's the beginning of the new relationship. So if you could just go around quickly, what was your first bomb to your child? I forgot that we also apologize in the letters. Yeah, you apologize for past behavior, for not being there for you, and being judgmental of you and your friends. Now, okay? Just bombs, yeah. You give what? An iPad. An iPad. You know what a bong is? A bong, I guess it's drug related. Or yeah, we don't buy drugs, but if you buy a bong, which right. you smoke weed with, right. and it says on it, have a great trip, we love you, the kid knows that <laughs> you, we're not enemies anymore, okay? By the way, that's very radical for you. Must must have been amazing for you. That was a year ago, a year and few, two weeks ago, and uh, this past week, my son disclosed to me that he, on his own, stopped, um, stopped smoking weed. And he threw away the bong. Wow. And okay. all the... All the you should have at least re-gifted it. Why do you throw it away? <laughs> Sell it on eBay, you know? And, okay. and he told all his friends that he smoked with That's a fantastic story. You know what? These are very heartwarming stories. Okay. What was your first bomb? This is happening. Oh, you just stole three bombs? They're, they're planning the bombs. Okay, bomb? No, it's all... Guys, come on. First bomb. I, I, I think a bomb is very radical, but I think an iPad... For them, for it's pretty radical also, right? It could be more. <laughs> right? Okay. You don't remember? 65 inch TV, and then my son thought that Tom Bailey was smoking because it was so radical. <laughs> okay, you didn't get a bomb? No, we didn't get a bomb. And a bomb. Okay. My father didn't have Okay. Going to. Going to uh, That's a crazy what? story. That's dark that you don't see. <laughs> 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 that's I have a and changed the whole wardrobe into out of the old in with an old. Yours or the three kids? Pants, miniskirts. We found him major DJ equipment. He was interested in very. That's not so twisted. Oh, we hated music. Okay, that'll count. Okay. Mini skirts. Mini skirts. Jeans, Grateful Dead, crazy, crazy music. PlayStation. Yeah, you got off easy. <laughs> You're in the wrong group. PlayStation. Okay. iPad. iPad is very popular around here. Bong. iPad and a liquor. Right. Just tell him. You tell him that story because this is amazing. We're drinking went. for a year and a half, two years? Yeah, and, and we went, it was a shop this morning, we live on 16th Avenue, 44th Street, we went to the hospital, uh, which is on uh, 80th Street and 2nd Avenue, we walked in the snowy, freezing, right at uh, shop this morning, and, um, and we bought him the liquor and he stopped drinking. How long was he clean? Um, two years.
two years clean. We had Rabbi. Stop drinking lachas. <laughs> oh, you're not going to buy me liquor. I'm not going to be drinking. Right? Okay, you guys. Um, my son is asthmatic, very asthmatic. We bought him a huge carton of cigarettes. After the third carton, he quit. Yeah, the, I'm hearing successful, a lot of successful stories this room tonight. So basically, what what I believe is that. Are you a doctor? No. Yes. 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 No, I'm, I'm a master. I'm a master capologist. Yeah. So no, what I believe is very that when, you, when your relationship with your parents is at 100, yeah. you don't need drugs. And therefore, even whatever it takes to get there, the kids can stop drugs. We don't want the kids going outside to do, do drugs. If you're smoking weed, you do it in your room. You're part of the family. Don't dress up for us. Don't put a yarmulke on your head. We love the real you. Right. And then when they're comfortable, which happens years earlier, they actually mamish just want to be like us. Can I quickly say something? We overcooked our son. We bumped him for a year and a half. Nuked him. <laughs> He's now in the California for a month. He's desperate to be helped. He said, I just want to become back normal. Uh, I, I'll do anything I have to do. He, he left today, this morning. He, he has an IV line for, he has Lyme disease, so he doesn't care. He's just going with it. We have to ship his medication. We have to you know, make all the arrangements. We went through a very tough few weeks till we got to this point, and he's just, I don't care what, I have to be helped. I There's a therapist in California that we found that does a trauma therapy. He was there a few weeks ago for a week. He came back, and he only wants to go back, so he should he should do intense therapy. I have a question for all of you. How, how do you deal in your Hasidic backgrounds with your own communities? And how do you overcome your own um, sort of shame you know, in your shul or in your sect about having to buy instead of TV or an iPad? When we called up, we were devastated. Our family, I, I really, really considered killing my son. Really, it was that bad. I considered killing myself, him first. <laughs> was, no, I'm, I'm joking. Well, you like every other wife. I also <laughs> deal with, with my, my, my pain with, with humor, but there is always truth in humor. And when we, he called up and we were desperate, everyone said, you know, we can't do that. And I always said those three words, I can help you. Four of us. I can help you. That's it. I didn't believe him. I thought he was a machigna. His stupid method, which I heard things about. He's a machigna. I don't know. I said, let's just try it. Anyway, he made us go to our rabbi. Our rabbi said no. So then I said to my husband, wait, how did you tell him? Did you tell him what Aaron's doing? So he went back and told the truth. You know, my son. And then the rabbi said, it was a big, big, big hush of a rabbi. You right? can say his name. Rabbi Schlesinger. And uh, he said, you know, he's very radical. So my husband said, yes, but that's what my wife wants. And he said, do it. After that, kosher. Anybody else with this story? I, I, I heard you mention that your father was Finca. Yeah. I don't, I'm not exactly sure which strain of Finca. <laughs> the bar park one. The bar park. And, and it happens to be that, so his, his cousin, the Heschler. That's Yankel. No, the bar park is Yankel. But his cousin, the Heschler. Um, I just had a story two, what was it, two weeks ago, a, a story probably 30 years ago, of a person, of a very rebellious kid, so to speak, that was home and doing crazy stuff. And Shabbos came to the table, putting down a radio on the table, playing music, cursing, and all that. And his father just wanted to throw the kid out of the house. 
And the, and he went, went to the Peshman and he told him you can't throw the kid out of the house. And once I heard the story from a person that was there that once was in the same place in the house and this person asked this, per, uh, this other person that I spoke to if you can please come into the Rebbe together with him to help him out because he has to get the kid out of the house. And after arguing he went in and he kept on telling the Rebbe but he's destroying the house, he's destroying the Shabbos table, he's playing music at the Shabbos table. He's using all kind of four-letter words. And the other kept on saying, in the high, in the high, in the high, in the No matter what he said, he kept on saying, the kid stayed home. Um, I did mention the name, I kept, of the person. Um, the person, the, the kid totally turned around and is in took care of bringing back. I don't see anybody unless their doctor sends them to me. But so everybody here was sent by the And for me, I, I, I happened to be a speaker, so I went to his son the moment we had the story, and 2 o'clock in the morning he called Avi, and it was um, three and a half years ago, and said, that's where you go, and you're going to do exactly what he says, and you're not going to question it. Listen, it's very refreshing to hear that the rabbis today are on the same page, and they understand. Not all. Yes. Some, at least, beginning more and more, beginning to understand. But a lot of the things I had a dog. he said, I, Avi says, it was very interesting yeah. to hear that you're saying a lot of the things, and now sitting here, wow, we're not hearing anything new, but it's great because it's other people that feel the same way, and it's wonderful. I mean, you're a success story. Well, <laughs> depends who you ask. <laughs> <laughs> but it happens to be I had really? a dog in the house, because my daughter wanted a dog a year and a half ago, and um, my wife didn't want, I mean, she wanted a dog three years ago, but my wife didn't want for two years, and finally was, I mean, we, we agreed to it, but it was the Rebbe today that was, that was saying, like, and if your child would need a seeing eye dog, would you die? The Rebbe called. You, 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 you would have, you would have an issue. She needs a dog. Get her a dog. Smart and Rebbe. he called somebody for me wow. in, in five towns or somewhere that he knew he has dogs. says, uh, I don't remember his name. He says, I need a dog. You have a dog? <laughs> <laughs> and I, he made a conference call. And when I, when I hung up the phone, he told me, you see, another clue who also has a dog. So what's the big deal? <laughs> I make it my point to go in the grocery store with my daughter in front of all of my friends to make sure you, I, you cannot begin to imagine what this does to the child. Sure. She comes back and right now, she's off leave for, for like, four or five months. We even told her, I want to take her a fan so she wouldn't smell it. So she said, no, 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 I don't want the fan. I, I don't want to do it anymore. And I'm seeing results which are mamish like you know, I did not realize what a happy room this is tonight. <laughs> yeah, you all have fantastic stories. Just like you with humor. <laughs> well, <laughs> guess what? So with humor, that's another thing. You ask how we feel like it's coming back to this room. This room really helps. That's it's fantastic. Yeah, if you come every week, you get uh, support. No, I'm, I'm, you know, when I walked in, I looked around the room, I was really shocked. I, no, I, I had no idea who I'm talking to. I had no idea what I was going to say. It all happened this afternoon, but I'm really so pleasantly surprised to hear so many nice stories about how it's really working for many It's called Twisted. Yeah. So when you, when, you, when you ask them how you're not ashamed, it's like just the opposite. We are so proud of what we're no, doing. No, it's fantastic. That, it's like, uh, we heard that we have a special guest. We didn't know who the guest was. Uh, maybe all my food is getting spoiled now, but it's out of the refrigerator. <laughs> but he says, I have Hashik to go. And I said, okay, fine. So I'll have, everything has this. I'll worry about the food when I get home. But this is our lifeline. 
That's fantastic. I think it's really amazing that this actually goes on. It's such a nice thing. Hope it goes on in other communities too. Not enough. We drive it. Not enough. Not enough. It's worth Muncie. Yeah. I want to really thank you. You're opening up and sharing your your story. I, I don't know if you realize how 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 impactful. Thank you. So thank you. I'm thanking it's, you. You're listening to my story. <laughs> but but it really it solidifies in a in a way everything that we've learned from Ali. So thank you so so much. Um, regarding your question about you know the community, it's it's because we get the strength here. At least that's what I I feel with us. Because we get the strength here and we have we do our own ba yeah backing us. We do it with such it's like you, if you if it's done with pride and right. with and with emotional you know help, then everyone else just this yeah they all follow me. So by the way, the same thing with the kids. I, you mentioned before, if you love the kid unconditionally, you let them be. They're not bad. They're not Out of almost three hundred couples who have come here to me in the last six years. Not one time was Shomim ever called. We haven't had any kids fighting with the parents, no cursing, no door slamming, because we're not their enemy. We kill the rebellion and we kill it with love. You invite the rebels into your government, they're not rebels anymore. And what we find is that these same kids, all of them, who are, they're so angry because they're not appreciated, they're looked down at, and really they're just mamish cute little mushy kids that were traumatized and they're forced to behave a certain way and we have to carry them through the dark years. Mamish, especially teenage years, they're dark years. Or even if they're a little older, we carry them. We don't drop them just because they're embarrassing us or they're not doing what we want. Because if we drop them now, why should they ever why should they ever reattach to us? But if we carry them and we stick with them when they're not thinking straight for whatever reason, they will actually attach us. I just want to say a vart that I think you're going to love. I say it here all the time. It really should be on the door. The, the Balaturim. Balaturim is a Rishon, like Rashi. It's an amazing Balaturim. Very short. It says, If the Ivelis, the folly, foolishness, is kosher, bound, to the lave of a nar. A nar is a teenager. Right? It could be older these days also, but your kid is, is, is bound by foolishness, by Facebook, by Instagram, by drugs, by all this craziness, but they're bound by it. They're addicted or whatever word you want to use. What do you do if Ivelis Kshura believe not? So he says, you know what? In the Torah, there's another time it says Kshura and Vinasayra. The only Eitzah is Vinafshay of the father has to be Kashur Vinafshay of the child. Every time you do something, what we call twisted, when you embrace the miniskirt, the, the piercings, the we, whatever it is that you are embracing, and you're binding, and that's why some people do everything right, but they don't get the right result because they never bound their nefesh. What we are really doing, all this other stuff is a trick. You have to bind your nefesh to your child. When the child's nefesh is bound to your soul, you avoid right away three quarters of the problems. And then when they're ready and they feel support, they can come back easily, easily. Mamish, mamish, easily. They say, I need help. The therapist, the top therapist are telling me, Abby, when your parents, when their kids come into my, I save a year, a year and a half of therapy. No issues with the parents. They say, look, this is my, my miniskirt. My mommy bought it for me. My, my, my stuff, everything is by the parents. You supply them because you become a shubid to your supplier. 
So let them become mishubid to you. There's something very important we forgot to mention, because when you will mention this method, people will say, but what about all the other little children? Aren't they going to get affected? And they don't. They're, they look at their, their siblings as unhealthy becoming healthier. And in fact, I had half a kip, who, oh, a kip is a kid in pain, and she got I call cured. Them kids. She, she got cured accidentally. We were worried about our son. She was fine. So she went about a piercing, and we had Shemra Brothers. We just married a child. And in Shul, and in Shul um, I said, okay. It was a big pizza, and all the women. I said, okay. Show them your belly ring. Show it. Go on. In Shul, Ma. I said, just show it. What's it there for? And she lifted and showed her belly ring, and everyone was like, it's crazy. My kids were there, and they were like all bashful. My kids are all from, and none of them are going off. They're becoming stronger and better. And they, they, right, they, right. when they see how you treat this specific child, it lets them know that, wow, my parents are really unconditional. And that really, even though they don't have to actually go through certain things themselves, they know that if Kassel they ever had to go down that road, <laughs> that you are the person who will always be there for them. Occasionally they'll say, Mom, you want to buy me something nice? Yeah. Sure, they have left you? <laughs> <laughs> we have almost um, over 1,800 siblings that are under our care. I, I'm, I'm, I'll tell you, I'm really walking out of this room tonight. Our daughter, she, she was on heroin, so she ended up at the end in rehab. And she graduated rehab, and she's in sober living. And she, very small percentage of success story, successful in rehab, right? And she was successful because, again, she went on her own. She went, we weren't there to push her to tell her you need rehab. She went I, I don't think there's a single, I mean, some of the kids, you know, some of the kids of the parents here ended up in rehab, ultimately. Uh, I don't think there's a single one that was actually sent to rehab, ever. They all went there from their own will, ultimately. Anyway, to, to make this long story short, so so, she's in, so she was invited in rehab to speak. They invited her because they're very proud of a success story like her. So yesterday she spoke in one of their uh, things and she was she didn't prepare and she was saying one of the things she said, I was hoping the day I came to rehab that um, that being clean is really going to suck. And and actually I saw it's amazing to wake up every day like, wow, I'm clean, and then another day. And they were like amazed with that line, but for them, they have so few success stories. But it's also all thanks to this mahalach that we're being taught, because even when she went to rehab and she called, I can't do this, can't do this, I wanna come home. We told her, then come home, you can't do this, come home. But because we didn't tell her, you have to do this, you gotta go, you gotta get your life back together. So she thought it over, okay, fine, I will stay. And all this were being taught there. I just want to add that um, Ani encourages us to bring our other children to meet with him. And that's part of the reason why they're so accepting and they're able to do what we do also. Uh, I'll tell you, I'm really blown away by what I'm hearing tonight. That's the truth. It's very moving. Come back tomorrow. <laughs> 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 I don't make the marginal business group. <laughs> <laughs> you think you're No, I think it's really uh, incredibly uplifting. I'm uplifted to actually to listen to all the success stories. I thought I'm coming into a sad, depressing room. In the meantime, there are a lot of happy stories. That's the newcomers. Yeah. yeah, I mean, we started about a month ago, and for a year and a half, my 
wife and I were banging our heads against the wall. We didn't know what to do with our 15-year-old. And since we went through the 15 hours with Avi, we got acculturated to this. It's like we have, we have a diagnosis, we have a plan, the pressure went away. We're not trying to fit a, a peg, square peg into a round hole anymore. And it's been such a relief. How did you find? How did everybody find this place? How did everybody find you? Actually, I found from Israel. Really? I mean, I don't know. The better opponent will say in the next few minutes. Everyone, everyone here has to speak to their own first. No ifs, ands, or buts. Everyone's in full force. This is an extreme situation. It has to be accepted that way. It's amazing. Then he has to accept it. Yeah, I'm very picky. <laughs> <laughs> has to be really, really bad. No, I only, yeah, I only yeah. deal with the worst situations. The worst, the worst it is, the better off it is. I mean, people drove, how many people drove from Muncie? Just one, two? That was three weeks ago. Okay, I think we should wrap it up. We still have a lot of work to do tonight. Uh, Really, really, really want to thank you.